Welcome to episode number two in the Therapeutic Parenting Podcast, which is coming to you from the COECT, the Centre of Excellence in Child Trauma. We are committed to providing people living and working with child trauma with proven strategies to achieve the best possible outcomes for families. Whoever you are, be it a parent, someone who suffered trauma in your early years, or even a supporting professional, we are here for you. I'm your host, Serena Gay, and today I'm again joined by Sarah Nash, the CEO and founder of the Centre for Excellence in Child Trauma, or COECT. Sarah is an internationally recognised expert in therapeutic parenting. Her expertise was grown through a lifetime's experience of raising five severely traumatised siblings whom she adopted and raised to adulthood. She's also worked as a social worker, owned a fostering agency and founded both Inspire Training Group and the National Association of Therapeutic Parents, the NATP. She's the UK's best-selling author on therapeutic parenting and will be a familiar name to many listening to the podcast. Today, we're talking about developmental trauma disorder, what it is and why it's important that children who've suffered early life trauma are correctly diagnosed with it. So hello again, Sarah. Hi, Serena. And let's start with asking you to explain about what developmental trauma disorder or DTD actually is. It's a little known, um, it's a little known phrase, really, unfortunately. It's championed, the term is championed by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And he's done a lot of research in the USA on this. And uh, he discovered that in fact, when you have an awful lot of conditions that are associated with children from trauma, you can bring all these together and use the term developmental trauma disorder because we find that our children share a great deal of characteristics, especially behavioural characteristics, due to neglect that they've suffered or trauma that they've suffered in their early life or pre-birth. So for a number of years now, he's been trying to get the term developmental trauma disorder as a diagnosis into the um, manual that the, the health professionals use to diagnose these conditions. And so far, it hasn't been accepted. So the nearest we get to it is post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, complex PTSD, that kind of thing. However, it's widely recognised now within social work and therapeutic parenting that children who have suffered trauma invariably have developmental trauma disorder and it's thought likely that in the, the next time that the manual comes out which tells health professionals how to diagnose these conditions that it will be in there that's going to make life a lot easier for all of us because then instead of trying to explain all the symptoms of developmental trauma disorder we can just start talking about developmental trauma disorder. And it is actually referred to as DTD is it? Yes, yeah, we, we um, shorten it to DTD. Um, in the past, people talk uh, frequently about attachment disorder. So that's about the closest you can get to it. That looks quite similar. Uh, it's just that attachment disorder is really part of developmental trauma disorder. It's, it's one of the symptoms, really, that we see. So if you were to describe the symptoms, you know, to help parents look for them, where would you start? Well, I'd start with what, some of the most common ones. So the most common thing that parents talk to us about and what I saw in my own children was that 
for a start, the, the brain has developed differently. Where a child has suffered neglect and abuse, the brain develops differently. So one of the things we see is that the children have very high levels of cortisol and adrenaline. Of course, you can't see that. So that translates into different behaviours. And one of the things that we see when a child has high levels of cortisol and adrenaline is they find it very difficult to sit still. So sometimes that gets misdiagnosed as ADHD, but cortisol drives us to movement. It also drives us to eat sugar. <laughs> so um, often we'll see within children that have suffered trauma that they're never still, they're moving around, they find it very difficult to sit still and concentrate and that they are very focused on getting sugar. So that's one of the things. Another thing that we see with developmental trauma is that children are often very fearful of adults, especially where they have been abused. So they may find it very difficult to approach adults and ask for help, or they might be very controlling, angry and defiant, um, that kind of thing. So, um, so, so I think what's happened is that we tend to diagnose bits and pieces of developmental trauma disorder. So, for example, a lot of children with um, DTD, they will be described as autistic or on the autistic spectrum, that type of thing. And how you can tell the difference, I can tell the difference now because my children have grown up. So when my children were young, they had 17 different diagnoses. Now, one of those diagnoses was um, epilepsy, for example, my daughter no longer has epilepsy. That was part of developmental trauma disorder. What she was really having was trauma-based seizures. So it looked the same as epilepsy, but it wasn't. My son, I was told by a paediatrician, he was on the autistic spectrum, um, quite severe. They, they felt he was autistic. He's now an adult. He's not autistic. <laughs> it's not possible to grow out of autism. Um, so obviously he didn't he didn't have autism. He wasn't autistic. So a lot of these things cross over and because of the areas of the brain it affects, the children do look uh, very similar. Um, another one that's important to mention is our children sometimes look like they have sensory processing disorder where they have a lot of issues around um, loud noises, bright lights, scratchy labels in clothing, that kind of thing, thinking baths are too hot or too cold um, and a general kind of disorganisation, memory issues. Um, one of my, two of my children were diagnosed with dyspraxia, which is now called developmental coordination disorder. And um, they no longer have that. So um, that, that wasn't a true diagnosis. That was a symptom as well of developmental trauma disorder. Is the difficulty in diagnosing it the reason why DTD had trouble being effectively officially recognised? Yes, I think a lot of people get very nervous of um, DTD. I think that they feel that, you know, this is incredibly complicated. And I think human nature wants to break things down and wants to say, do you know what? You know, I think this child, he's got ADHD. Well, ADHD is very easy. It's a tick box exercise to diagnose. And then that fits nicely into a box. Oh, yes, he, he never sits still. He's very busy. Uh, finds it hard to settle. Um, he's got ADHD. Well, once you start looking at that and saying it might not be ADHD, it might be due to cortisol levels and there's also this and there's this and this. People can feel overwhelmed by that. Therapeutic parents who have been doing this a long time, they kind of get it really and they understand that 
by just putting the labels on the behaviour and trying to minimise it, it doesn't make their lives any easier. It's time that we all just really woke up and smelt the coffee and recognise developmental trauma for what it is. Are you hopeful then that it, it will be given the official recognition by the UK health authorities that, that it needs to be given? Yes, I think that in the next diagnostic manual, it will be included. Um, And we've had some success in that already within the NATP. We've lobbied quite hard for the um, child and adolescent mental health services to diagnose it. And in fact, some of them have diagnosed it. And we've been sent these little victorious snapshots from parents where their child has had a diagnosis of developmental trauma disorder even though the psychiatrist at the time has said we're not really supposed to do this. But the thing is, people are beginning to understand it and they they know what that means. Skilled professionals know what it means. So how are children who've clearly gone through early life trauma, how are they assessed for any problems that, that will definitely arise, that must arise from such an early life experience? What happens really is it's quite piecemeal. So... What we usually find is that it depends where you live. I mean, some places are better than others, but there seems to be a bit of a reactive response. So, for example, one of my children who presented no issues at school but was very quiet and withdrawn didn't really qualify for any type of assessment. And it was only in her later life as a teen when some of the problems surfaced that people started believing what I was saying about her level of trauma So what we find often is this reactive kind of assessment to whatever the presenting problem is. So if you've got a child who's running around at school and perhaps being violent, there might be an assessment there. You might get an educational psychologist come in and they may assess them and say they've got ADHD. Um, But what we don't see much of is that proactive assessment we we are moving towards that in the centre of excellence we use something called a trauma tracker which is the brainchild of Sarah Dillon and she has this within our therapeutic fostering agencies and what that does is it really looks at the child's history and from the history identifies what the problems may be that we're going to encounter and the behavioural issues that the child will have due to their psychological makeup that's the kind of thoughtful preventative work we need to be doing in diagnoses really. But parents can't expect to find that kind of approach elsewhere then currently? For example I mean from the social services really? Mm. Well they can get assessments obviously with social services and certainly when I worked in a social work office we would refer children to CAMS and as I say it is a little bit hit and miss depending on where you live so some CAMS team are absolutely brilliant and they uh, as I say they've actually diagnosed children with developmental trauma disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder uh, attachment disorder that kind of thing that's helpful if you have a child and they're diagnosed with ADHD or perhaps people say they're on the autistic spectrum if that diagnosis helps you to unlock resources for the child and help school to understand what some of the problems are that your child is facing, then that's okay. When I had diagnosis for my son saying that he had ADHD and was on the autistic spectrum, I knew that wasn't quite right. I knew it didn't go far enough, but the point is it did make the school give him some of the support and structure that he needed. So, If you do get a diagnosis that's helpful, 
we accept that. We just know it's a partial diagnosis. And once a diagnosis has been reached, if it is reached, what sort of resources are available to parents to help them with their their child that has undergone developmental trauma disorder or is undergoing it? Well, I find, again, that the help is patchy. And I think that's why we exist, really. Uh, We find it patchy, not only in the UK, but around the world. And it depends a lot on the, the, the level of knowledge that there is in perhaps the social work team that's supporting that parent. So, for example, if you are fostering in the UK and you are fostering with a therapeutic fostering agency, there are very few uh, around in the UK, um, you can expect a very high level of good quality support and knowledge around developmental trauma. So part of that support will look like you having somebody listen who really understands where you are, who's perhaps raised a child from trauma. That in itself is incredibly helpful. If you are an adopter, again, a lot of social workers work in the adoption team. They've had many years experience. They understand what developmental trauma disorder looks like and they're great. Other adoption teams in other parts of the country, not so great, (laughs) not very knowledgeable. And then we look at people like special guardians And the people that struggle the most are kinship carers and special guardians where the support just doesn't seem to be there for them. And there seems to be a bit of a misconception that if you're perhaps raising children that are your grandchildren, everything should be okay. And there's a kind of um, ignoring of the fact of what might have happened to those children in the early years. There's a there's there's kind of a turning away from the fact that those children may also well have developmental trauma disorder. We speak to many grandparents who are really struggling to raise their grandchildren for one reason or another. So you know that there's a lot that can be done to help. Yeah. Is it ever too late to start helping these children? It's never too late for the children. I'm still really therapeutically parenting my children and they're now all over 21. And we make differences every week, really. So I do say, you know, take heart because one of the first things that children need that have suffered trauma, they need strong routines, structure and boundaries. And most parents put that in anyway. So if you're put, if you've got a strong routine and you're helping the children to understand what happens first and what happens second and when to expect their food, you've actually already put in the basics that you need to build on. One of the things that we use within therapeutic parenting is a strategy uh, called naming the need. And I know that will be explained in later podcasts. But when we use that strategy, we help children to start to make sense of their own behaviours. Now, it's never too late for that. And I've seen children that are teenagers, 15, 16, 17 years old, really change profoundly when they've started to realise, do you know what? It's not me it's what happened to me and I can change this. I have control over this. I understand now why I behave the way that I do. And that is at the root of all therapeutic parenting. And that is what helps our children to change and to achieve their potential. But what about the children who haven't come from profoundly unhappy backgrounds, but those who experienced, let's say, pre-birth or early life trauma Perhaps you could explain how that could be the case, that a a child could experience 
pre-birth or early life trauma. And then we could perhaps discuss what happens to damage the child, um, you know, why they will be in need of help from an organisation like COECT. So let's start off with asking about how they could have experienced developmental trauma disorder as a result of their pre-birth or early life trauma experience. Yes, um, we find this quite interesting because, in fact, my uh, business partner who works very closely with me and writes all the training, she is a therapeutic parent, birth parent, and she has two children who have suffered developmental trauma. Now, that happened because when she was pregnant, she had HSG, which is a very serious uh, pregnancy sickness illness. And because of that, she was very ill, vomiting severely throughout her pregnancy. So she had high levels of cortisol during her pregnancy. Because of that, that meant that the cortisol crossed the placenta. So her children were born with very high levels of cortisol. Now, the crucial difference between her children and my children are that her children are not frightened of adults. They they trust their parents. They have not been abused but interestingly, they have so many of the characteristics my children have. So they look like they have dyspraxia. They certainly have sensory processing issues um, and they are really struggling with memory. Um, certainly her son um, is at the moment undergoing an assessment for autism. So although there's some key things that the way the children are different. So, for example, Sarah can take her children to a party and her children will behave appropriate at the party and be able to share the food. My children could not do that because they'd be fearful that someone was going to eat all the food. So they would quickly have eaten all the, all the food that they could. They, they couldn't do a party tea share. So there's some there are some noticeable difference. Um, the other way that uh, we see that developmental trauma happens. So, for example, my youngest child came to me she was removed at birth from her birth parents but she experienced domestic violence in utero so although we think that that's happening externally actually if the child is in the uterus and the the birth mother is being punched or kicked in the stomach and there's a lot of screaming and shouting and again very high levels of cortisol and adrenaline from the birth mother crossing that placenta to the child that affects the way that child's brain is developing and it affects the way that they respond and react to you know for example the birth father's voice after they're born so my youngest child was born with very high levels of cortisol and um, that drove her to eat lots of sugar. Uh, she, she was on the lookout for that and she also used to jump quite a lot. Um, people would call it overreacting but again that's because of um, the high levels of cortisol so she would jump and she would you know always blame everyone else. It's always be somebody else's fault. Um, sort of hypersensitive she'd be described as and certainly some sensory processing issues but like um, Sarah's children she wasn't frightened of adults she wasn't frightened of me for example because she was removed at birth but she would have been uh, very nervous had she heard a man shouting that would have triggered her so I think the third category we need to remember, though, is children who have had an early life hospitalisation or some kind of trauma very early on, because I think people overlook those children too. And they too can demonstrate or display the same patterns of behaviour that you've just been talking about. 
Yes, absolutely. And once we explain that to parents, because often we get contacted by birth parents who say, you know, my, my child suffered no trauma. They've always been with me. I don't understand it. But the behaviours that I'm seeing are like this. And I'll say, talk me through, talk me through their early life. And sure enough, often they'll say something like, well, you know, they were premature or, you know, when they were nine months, they went into hospital and they were there for a while. And I said, OK, so at some point your child's in hospital, someone's wearing a mask and perhaps sticking a needle in them or doing something that needs to be. And you're sitting next to them. Now, you know, this is for the good of the child. The child is pre-verbal. How have they internalised this? They've internalised it, unfortunately, as something bad happened to me. Mummy didn't keep me safe. That's really difficult. I think that's really hard for birth parents. You've explained that coping with the aftermath of this early trauma experience can really take a lifetime to, to cope with. But for worried parents and professionals who are listening to this, what short-term help can you suggest? And I'm, I'm thinking here about your, uh, some of the books that you've written, for example, The A to Z of Therapeutic Parenting. Is this something that, you know, that they can at least in the short term refer to as, as a Bible, if you like, uh, of advice that, that can help them find approaches? Yes. I mean, The A to Z of Therapeutic Parenting is the one that everyone refers to. And I wrote that because I wrote it as the book that I needed when my children were young. Because the thing is, there was loads of stuff around to read about the theory and brain development and all the rest of it. But there wasn't really anything there that was telling me what to actually do. So when my child had stolen loads of chocolate and shoved it in their mouth and they were sitting there saying to me they hadn't stolen the chocolate, but you could clearly sit, you know, I... I only had standard parenting stuff to fall back on. I didn't know what to do. So the A to Z of therapeutic parenting is literally, first of all, it explains why our children do the things they do and also what doesn't work, because that's important. You can save years of stuff with that. And then it's got every behaviour and you just look up the behaviour. Um, if your child's, you know, bedwetting or if you've got issues with stealing or lying or defiance, rudeness, all of those things that our children are famous for, you can look it up and it gives you, it explains why it happens, where it comes from, what you can do to help prevent this coming, uh, happening, this behaviour happening, uh, what you can do while it's happening and things to think about afterwards. So we've certainly had a lot of really positive feedback on that and I know that it has changed many families' lives and a lot of social workers use that as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you. And there'll be a link to that um, in the show notes if people are interested in knowing where to find it. Sarah, that's been really interesting. Thank you very much. Next week, we will be discussing raising children with developmental trauma disorder from an adopter's viewpoint and experience. So to find out more and to access help, please feel free to visit our website. So that's www.coect. .co.uk. And if you'd like to receive this podcast every week, just press the subscribe button. You'll find it where you found this podcast. And we'd love you to leave a review for the podcast. It'll help other people find us and all our helpful advice. Bye for now. <laughs>